Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we've come into your presence, we've heard your word, now write your truth on our hearts, have access to our hearts, be glorified in this, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I've read a section, a portion of scripture, Matthew chapter 1, and I'd like to use this passage as something of a launching pad and go elsewhere in our Bibles answering this question, where does all this fit? Where does Christmas fit? Often we speak of the details and the intricacies of the birth of Jesus, and it rightly so, it's there in our Bibles. But I want to ask the question, where does all that fit in the big picture? Someone once said, you don't see the forest for the trees. You understand that expression that you can see the little intricacies, but you don't see the big picture. Or conversely, you see the big picture, but don't see the details. We need both. And today I'd like to go and see the big picture. Now, the birth of Jesus, it might be shocking to you to realize, wasn't that miraculous. It was a normal birth. There was a great light show. I, I'll give you that. There was a great light show but Jesus' birth was kind of unremarkable. It was a normal human birth. Beware of the ideas, even in Christmas carols, it says, and little Lord Jesus, no crying he made. I'm not sure about that. I think he was a normal, healthy baby and got upset when it wasn't, he wasn't getting food, you know, but that's because he was a normal child. It's not the birth that was miraculous. It's actually the conception, the conception that was miraculous. I want to ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe in a virgin birth? Earlier in our service, we recited the Nicene Creed. The Apostles' Creed reads this way, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, listen to this, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. I want to ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that? The Nicene Creed reads this way, 
We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. And it goes on to say this, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. Do you believe that? I want to ask you that question. I do. In fact, if you believe in a God who is the creator of heaven and earth, to quote the sentence before in the creed, if you believe that, he's the creator and sustainer of everything, he can do any kind of miracle. If you would argue from the greater to the lesser, that's a good logistical thing to do, you argue from the big thing, the gigantic thing, the massive, enormous thing, and say, look, if that's true, then this little thing is also true. If God made man from the dust of the ground, he can do this thing called the virgin birth. He can do that. If he can make Orion, and if he can make Pluto, and all the stars, and he, he, he can do all that. If he can make the vastness of space, he, he can do this. I believe that. I believe a virgin was with child. But today, I want to ask this question, where does all this fit? Christmas being the this, where does this fit? You'll notice this. The message of the gospel is not summed up in some weekend work of the Son of God. It's not as if the Father said to the Son, look, I've got a job for you. Uh, go down to earth on a parachute on a Friday, die at Golgotha's cross. It'll be a hard week. It'll be a brutal week. You'll get whipped, you'll get scourged, you'll get crucified. It's not going to be good, but the good news is three days from then you'll be raised from the dead and come back to heaven. You know that's not the story, right? Uh, no, it's not the story. God didn't say that to his son. It is the story, but it's not the full story. And Christmas is not the full story. It actually started the story. It started in a garden. Adam was the federal head of the human race. He was chosen by God, and he had an impeccable record, and uh, he represented us. And just as all of us in Arizona don't go to vote on certain things in Washington, we send someone to represent us federally. And in the garden, Adam was the federal head of the human race. He represented us. And as you and I know, when people go to Washington from Arizona representing us, what they do there affects us. You might think, oh, why on a Friday uh, is this decree being made? No construction in Arizona for the next 10 years. Well, someone did something in Washington that affects us. We all know of things like that, that we think, oh, I wasn't there. Yeah, but you're being affected by it because someone represented you. And we were never better represented in the garden than in Adam. But as we know, when Adam was faced with temptation, he chose to disobey God, to file in with the serpent, and in that sense, the devil. And man became subject to the curse because God had said, the day you eat from that tree, you will surely die. And though he did not die for many, many years later, death entered into the human race, but he died spiritually that day. And everyone who's born of Adam is born into that spiritual condition. We're all born DOA, dead on arrival, alive physically, but dead spiritually. 
And so there was this fall. Adam fell and we fell in him. And then in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in fact, if you can go there, I'd like us to go to several portions of Scripture. Genesis chapter 3, we have the proto-euangelion, the proto-evangelium, the first mention of the gospel in all of the Scripture. And the first mention is a promise, and yet it's in the context of a curse given to the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, in speaking to the serpent, there's good news for us. God said this, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity, that's hostility, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, between your seed and her seed. He, that's the coming seed of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? And I believe it's a hint, more than a hint, of a virgin birth. Normally, you talk about the seed of the man. We know from biology, that's how human babies come. And yet, God said, there's a seed of the woman coming, and he's going to bruise the head of the serpent. Is the virgin birth explicitly mentioned? No, but there's the first divine hint of it, and it's more than a hint. The seed of the woman will be the head crusher of the serpent. That's a promise. Now, I say that everything started here in the garden, but actually it started earlier than that, before there was a world, before there was a garden in what is called the covenant of redemption. The three members of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, had something of a conversation. We can only surmise what it was, but we see from Scripture that what happened on earth is a result of what happened in eternity and in the workings out of things on earth, it's the result of what was declared and decreed in something like a business meeting of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There were no angels yet. There was no earth yet. They, uh, there was one God in three persons, and they were enjoying fellowship one with another. We get hints of that all, all over our Bibles. Just go to John 1, 1, and it says, In the beginning, NRK, right as far back in time as you can go, NRK, Enho Logos, in the beginning was the Word. The Word as far back as you can go, the Word was already there. And the Word was with God, pros God, face to face with God. And yet, the Word was God. So, there are two divine persons even mentioned in that verse. The Word and God. And the Word is God. Work that one out. But there it is. You can't get past the first verse of John chapter 1. And at least two members of what we call the Trinity are spoken of and given to us in terms of revelation. And so, there was an agreement... And creation is the overflow of that agreement. In fact, we read this in Genesis 1, don't we? Verse 26. Let us make man in our image. And that's before man existed. There was this conversation. And so creation is the overflow of this love relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A holy love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God wasn't lonely. God wasn't needy. He didn't need us. Acts chapter 17, verse 25 declares it. He does not need anything. 
God, when we come on board in salvation and say yes to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, God doesn't say, oh, that's great. I, I, now, now I can do some stuff. Now, he didn't need us for his plan. He made man in his image. Man was to be the image bearer of God. And that is a high calling, a very, very high calling. And as I've already mentioned, we, in Adam, fell. But God's plan was not to move to plan B. He's always been on plan A. He's working out his purposes. He always has. He always wills. I love that about God. He gets his will done always. There may be kings and queens and presidents, but they don't always get their will done. But God gets his will done always. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 tells us he works all things according to the counsel of his will. He has a will. And Revelation 13 to the end of our Bibles talks about this. In the King James Version, Revelation 13, 80 reads like this. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Him in this context is the beast. And this is false, idolatrous worship. In other words, everybody on planet earth is going to worship the beast whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Did you catch that? That's a mouthful. Everybody's going to serve and worship the beast whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain. So there's a book and names are in it. And if you did not have your name in it, you are not likely to. You will worship the beast according to this particular verse. The book of life. So there's a book. Um, I'm, I was hearing recently that this is a symbolic book, and I thought, really? And then I had to think about it. Yeah, because there would have to be a book before there was anything made, because this was before the foundation of the world. So God didn't create a physical book and then make creation. Okay, it's just a thought. <laughs> but it's a symbolic thing. God has a way. A, data point, a data point of entry that allows him to know what the book is and whose names are in it, and we refer to it as the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So God had a plan, and God was not responding to things whereby he had to, like we do, oh, there's a calamity, what can we do? Let's synergize, let's get a business meeting, let's get corporate office involved, let's, let's try and have a think tank meeting and come up with a plan. Have you got any ideas, Gabriel? Uh, what are we going to do? No, God had a plan from all eternity, and he's working out that plan. And in that plan, the Father gave the Son a people. We read of this in John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So in eternity past, the Father gave the Son a people who would be redeemed by the Son and glory in the Son and praise the Son for eternity. That's kind of amazing. Yeah, it's an amazing book, this Bible. You ever read it? If you've read it and never been shocked, I don't think you've ever read it. It's an amazing book. And so fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus comes, born of a virgin, living this flawless, sinless life. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then he died on the cross. He rose from the dead. And then the early church went all everywhere preaching about the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because the New Testament was yet to be written, all they had to go on was the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. 
And they reasoned in the synagogues, and Acts chapter 5, verse 42 puts it this day, this way. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, that's the Messiah, is Jesus. They were proving from what we call the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. Acts 17. In fact, let's go there. We've, you've got a little bit of time. Really, Pastor? I've got a little bit of time? Yeah, I, I'm speaking for you. Acts chapter 17. Look at this. Verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, in being in the synagogue of the Jews. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, in this context, it's the Old Covenant Scriptures. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, is the Messiah. I wonder if you can do that. Prove that Jesus is the Messiah from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Uh, on to the next chapter, we read of Apollos in chapter 18. Just jumping into verse 28, it speaks of him. Powerfully, he, that's uh, Apollos, refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. We all know this, I'm sure. Christ is not Jesus' last name. He was not born to Mary and Joseph Christ. Christ is a title. The Greek word is Christos, and it means Messiah, the anointed one. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means Messiah. And so, after the resurrection, what did Jesus do? Well, he met with a couple who were distraught, who were despondent on the road to Emmaus, and what did he do? Well, we're told, he said this to them, "'O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken.'" Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, that's the first five books, and all the prophets, that's the rest of it, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he was able to go to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all the way on through to what we would call the end of the Old Covenant, the book of Malachi, and he was proving that the Messiah had to suffer, die, and rise again. Luke 24, 45, 44, verse 44 and 45. He talked about this. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Let me stop and ask, has your mind been opened to understand the scriptures, because once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once you see it, it's like, this is the most obvious thing. Jesus is the Messiah. Duh. It's obvious. And yet, some in reading the same Old Testament haven't come to the same conclusion. And why is that? There's a thing called spiritual blindness. And we see it all, all over the place in our Bibles. God has to grant us eyes to see. If you understand Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Like Peter, who had that same testimony, Jesus was able to say, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven. Do you know Christ? Do you recognize him? Do you love him? Uh, many times today, crimes are caught on camera. That's not always the case. 
And when it is not the case, oftentimes the victim of a crime is asked to give a description of the criminal, if they were there, present when it happened. And what happens in such an instant is that a skilled artist sits and listens to the description. And the moment the victim starts talking, the artist is now drawing a portrait of the criminal. Perhaps you've seen certain things and they end up uh, on our TV screens. Have you seen this man? He fits this description. And the description might be something like this. His height is about 5 foot 10. He's of slim build. He's of tanned skin, uh, dark hair that parts in the middle. He's got a small tattoo uh, of a black swan on the right side of his face and he was wearing a green t-shirt. And the better the description, the more detailed the portrait is. Following me? The more accurate the portrait can be because of the amount of information given in the description. Finally, after the full description is made, the artist who's been drawing the whole time lets the victim see the portrait and asks this question, is this what he looks like? And he might respond, well, his nose is a little wider than that. Okay, let's rub that out. Let's take that out and make it a little wider. Uh, but, But once done... Yeah, that's him. That's what he looked like. And then the picture is posted for the community to be on the lookout. The better the description, the more detailed, the more accurate the portrait can be. I say all this because in the same way, God has provided a very detailed description of the Messiah so that he'd be recognized. We could go through all of our Bibles, let's go on a really brief tour. Are you ready? Here we go. Looking at my watch. Promise you'll be out by Thursday. Here we go. In Genesis, this one to come, what happened was the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into him. And he was the one who walked in the garden with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. In Genesis, this one is, as I've mentioned, the seed of the woman. He's also pictured in Noah's ark. He's the ark of refuge. He's a priest of the order of Melchizedek. He is Abraham's ram caught in the thicket. He's the king in royal Judah's line. And on and on we could go. Let's try. Let's go to the book of Exodus. He's the one calling out from the burning bush, the great I Am He's the Passover lamb. He's the altar. He's the great high priest. He's the lamb for the sacrifice. He's the lamb. He's the rock. He followed his people in the wilderness. In Leviticus, he's the tabernacle itself. He's that altar, the great high priest, the lamb for the sacrifice. In Numbers, he's the brazen serpent lifted up on the pole for the healing of all who would look to him. He's the tabernacle's cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, Moses said, there's one coming like me. So he's a prophet like unto Moses. In the book of Joshua, he's the Lord's warrior. He's the Lord of heaven's army, the captain of our salvation. In the book of Judges, he's the angel of the Lord. He's our judge and our lawgiver. In the book of Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. 
In First and Second Samuel, he's our trusted prophet who sits on David's throne forever. In Kings and in Chronicles, he's our reigning king, the one greater than even Solomon. In Ezra, he's the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the restorer of broken walls. In Esther, he's our advocate, Mordecai. In Job, he's our ever-living redeemer. He'll take his stand upon the earth in the last days. In the book of Psalms, he's the Lord, our shepherd. In Proverbs, he's our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's our sure hope of resurrection when all else is vanity and futility. In the Song of Solomons, he's our loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, oh, he's born of the virgin. He's Emmanuel. He's the Lord of glory. He's high and lifted up in the temple. He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, El Gabor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, or source of everlasting life and the Prince of Peace. He's also the suffering servant of Yahweh. He's a sin-bearing Savior. He's wounded for our transgressions. He's bruised for our iniquities. The punishment due to us was upon Him. By His wounds we're healed. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the people of God, yet will be resurrected and live forever. Isaiah is a mouthful. Jeremiah, he's the righteous branch. The Lord, our righteousness. In Lamentations, he's our weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he's the son of man. In Daniel, he's the fourth man in the fiery furnace, the ancient of days, the one who comes in the clouds of heaven. In Hosea, he's the faithful husband. In Joel, he's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. In Amos, he's our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he's mighty to save. In Jonah, he's our great foreign missionary, the one who'll be three days and nights in the belly of the earth. In Micah, he's the eternal ruler of Israel, born in Bethlehem. In Nahum, he's the avenger of God's elect, our stronghold in the day of trouble. In Habakkuk, he's the great evangelist. In Zephaniah, he's the restorer of the remnant. In Haggai, He's the desire of all nations, the cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, he's a humble king riding on a colt, the pierced one, wounded in the house of his friends. In Malachi, this Messiah is the son of righteousness, risen with healing in his wings. Let's go to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. I spoke of Adam. Adam as our federal head. The Bible has much to say about him outside the pages of Genesis. He's a real person. We are real people. And we have to come from reality. You see, myth does not bring forth reality. If something's a myth, it can't bring forth anything, anything like reality, right? You have to be real to bring forth reality. And the Bible says and teaches that Adam was a real person who really did some things, and so was Jesus. Romans chapter 5 speaks of Adam and what he did. Therefore, 
Verse 12. Just as sin in, came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. How did all sin? Well, because we were all represented in Adam. When he sinned, we sinned in him. Shoot on down to verse 17. For if... Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass, that's the trespass of Adam, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, I believe here it's talking about the entire life of the Lord Jesus, leads to justification and life for all men. For us, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's the human race. So by the one man's disobedience, the many, that's those that are in Christ, will be made righteous. You see, Adam was a federal head and so is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're in Adam, you die. In Christ, you're made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Verse 20 of this chapter. Now the law came... To increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Back to the Gospel of Matthew for a moment. Matthew chapter 3. I'm going to put all this together, hopefully. There's an incident of enormous magnitude, the baptism of Jesus. Jesus... Uh, it says in verse 13, came from Galilee, Matthew 3.13, to the Jordan, to John, that's John the Baptist, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented, prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, do you come to me? Now John, because he was given insight by God, knew who Jesus was. He'd already said, John chapter 1 verse 29 says it, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John had made that proclamation. Now, Jesus was coming to John to be baptized. And John was thinking, this is, this, this is all wrong. I, I should be baptized by you. You're the greater one. I'm the lesser one. And, and Jesus, in so many words, says, look, we can't go through Salvation 101 right now. There's not enough time. But just do this. Do this because this is the right thing to do. We'll fulfill all righteousness. That's what we read. Verse 15, Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for, a, for us to fulfill all righteousness. You're not going to understand it now? Just do it, John. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God, that's the Holy Spirit, descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. does not say he was a dove, but he descended like a dove. And behold, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, all of this took place because there would have been a lot of confusion unless all the members of the Godhead got involved. Jesus was getting baptized by John, and it was a baptism of repentance. And so it would look to the outside world that Jesus had sin and needed to repent like everybody else who were going through the waters of baptism. But that's not what was happening. Jesus understood this. God is declaring everyone that's in Israel should be baptized under John's ministry, and me representing Israel, I'm representing Israel and the people of God as I go into the water. 
God is commanding this, I'm doing this. This is the right thing to do. Whenever God gives a law, we are responsible to do it. And God had told Israel, go to John, be baptized. And John was preaching that message. And so, just to make sure no one got the wrong idea, as Jesus came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, giving his attestation to who Jesus was. And the Father bellowed out from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. All right, everybody? Okay, okay, carry on. That's kind of what's happening here. So no one gets the false impression that Jesus was a sinner. No, he was doing the right thing. And John was finding out about it. That gives us a little bit of an insight. In fact, a a massive insight as to why Jesus came. Jesus came not only to die on the cross, but to live a righteous life. He lived a righteous life. I think that's just as supernatural as anything else you could ever read about. Like opening the eyes of a blind man. Living a righteous life in a polluted world where he was tempted beyond what you and I were normally tempted of. He was tempted beyond beyond and yet he did not succumb to the temptation. He was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness by the devil and after not eating for 40 days was tempted with food. How would you do? And Jesus survived and thrived even in that temptation experience. In fact, that's what's taken place here. It's, it's amazing. That's what goes on right after this baptism of Jesus in chapter 3, tempted of the devil. And yet Jesus lived this perfect life. Whatever God said, he did. He said, I don't say a thing unless I hear my Father say it. I do always those things that please him. You and I can't say that. I don't need to ask you, is that true? I know it's true. I don't need FBI surveillance of you to know You're a sinner like I am. But there's one who was not the Lord Jesus Christ, flawless, blameless, the perfect Lamb of God. If he had sinned at any moment in his earthly life, he would not be that unblemished Lamb that was necessary for the sacrifice. And there on the cross, what happened was the plan of God from all eternity, that God would send his Son into the world, he would be on that cross and then God would transfer to Jesus all the sins of all those who would ever believe, place it on the Son of God, and he would die in their place as the substitute, the ransom, the sin-bearer of the human race. And he bore our sins in his body on the tree, 1 Peter 2, 24 says. That's what happened. And he died an atoning death. He really did die, and he really did so much so that he was buried. He only buried dead people. But three days later, he rose again from the dead and now has ascended the throne. What has Jesus been doing for a couple of thousand years? He's been on his throne, interceding for his people. He ever lives to make intercession for us, the Bible says. Hebrews seven twenty-five. So where does the virgin birth fit in? It occurred so that the Messiah to come would not incur Adam's guilt. He would live a sinless life. And as our federal head, he did what we should have done. Do you realize that? I know 
we all say everybody makes mistakes everyone sins yeah and that's the problem sin is a big thing before a holy God but what Jesus did he did for us now get this Jesus not only died for us he lived for us he lived for us he died in our place but you know he lived in our place so that the one who believes in Jesus looks to Jesus. They may not put it in this language, but I think you're understanding it now. When you believe in Jesus, all that he is and that he's done, all that he is and all that he's done counts for you. So God treated Jesus on the cross as if he lived your and my life, but now he can treat us get this, as if we'd lived his life. He cancels out all our sins and gives us righteousness as a gift. You see, we can't just separate these things, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection. All of that is true and we, we make distinctions, but you know it's all one story? And without any one of those components, the whole story falls apart. Paul makes the point, if there is no resurrection from the dead, we're still in our sins. Our faith is futile. That's true about every component. If Jesus wasn't born, we're still dead in our sins. If there was no manger except an empty manger, there's no good news. But there is good news because the Son of God came into the world to save sinners. And he did so by being born of a virgin and living a sinless life and dying an atoning death and being raised from the dead and now being seated at the place of all authority so that anyone who repents and believes this good news is given not only forgiveness of sins but righteousness. Where does God give righteousness? How, on what basis? Is there some tree in heavenly Jerusalem that has little fruit of righteousness and you get a little peace? No. You get the very righteousness of Jesus Christ that fulfilled the entire law of God. I haven't done that, and I know you haven't. We haven't even kept the first commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. None of us have done that for even 24 hours. We don't need to go through the list. We've sinned against a very, very, very holy God, a thrice holy God. And this Jesus is coming again. Just as it was promised he would come the first time, the Bible says he's coming a second time. Jesus said, I will come again. The, Apostle Creed, the Apostles' Creed reads this way, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. You see, it's all one story. Was crucified, died and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, Almighty, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. The Nicene Creed puts it this way, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have 
no end. Which atom are you in? If you're only in the first atom and you get that by being born physically, you'll have all the results of the federal headship of Adam. Death, separation, eternal separation. But if Christ is your federal head, you have all that he is and all that he's achieved credited to your account. And the moment you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and rely on him, all that he is and all that he has done counts for you. I love this gospel. The more I've studied the Bible since the age of 14, the more I understand this is a remarkable story. And it's true. When you read the gospel account of Luke, it talks about the fact that attacks occurred under Quirinius and this happened and that happened. You can check those facts out in history. Do you know, history is his story. He's writing a story, except it's been written before there ever was a book. I want to ask you, are you in that book I referred to? The book of the Lamb that was slain. How do I know if I'm in the book? Have you trusted in the Son? It's that simple. All who trust in the Son, they walk through this door that says, whoever will may come. The door is there. Whoever will. It's for everyone. Everyone come. Jesus said, all that are weary, come to me. You walk through the door and you look back on the door you just walked through and it says, chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Have you come? And are you trusting in the one who came? There was a day, whether it was December 25th or not, I'm not sure, but I know he came. The gospel writers are not so much concerned about the actual date, they just want to just rejoice in the fact that he came. Angels announced it and everyone else is repeating it. And once one man saw the Lord Jesus in his babyhood, he says, now I can depart in peace. Because I've seen this part of the story and I know you'll fulfill the rest of the story. Do you have that confidence? You can have that confidence because the story was fulfilled at Christmas and then Jesus' heart kept beating and he lived and then his heart stopped and then he died and he rose again and he's seated at the place of all authority so that anyone who repents and believes in this Lord Jesus has the gift of eternal life. Jesus reversed Adam's fall. Did he come for you? You can know it by whether you've come to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for this amazing message. Write the truth of it on our hearts now and forever, that we might forever sing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.